Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with today's hearing on the confirmation to the Supreme Court of Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson before the Senate Judiciary Committee, at which Senators Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz, both of whom supported the insurrection against the United States in the January 6th storming of the Capitol, where lawmakers' lives were threatened, relentlessly tried to make the case that Judge Jackson is soft on pedophiles. Joining us to discuss how the extreme partisan Republican attack dogs with the loudest barks dominated today's Judiciary Committee hearing is Lisa Graves, the Executive Director of the new corporate watchdog group True North Research. She has served as a senior advisor in all three branches of the federal government, as Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the Justice Department, as Chief Counsel for nominations on the Senate Judiciary Committee, and as a Deputy Chief of the Article Three Judges Division for the U.S. Courts. Then we'll look into the purge underway by Putin as he places senior FSB intelligence officers under arrest and sacks Russian generals while stifling dissent and labelling his own citizens who disagree with his war as scum and traitors. Now, with Putin's military offensive in Ukraine stall, he is doubling down with Russian guns and missiles trained on the civilian population as the desperate dictator tries to murder and terrorise Ukraine's population into submission. Joining us to investigate the possibility Putin is trying to preempt an insider coup against him is Douglas London, a retired senior CIA operations officer and a professor at Georgetown University's Centre for Security Studies. Over the course of his 34 years in the CIA's clandestine service, almost 17 of which was in the foreign field as a recruiter and agent handler, he served in the Middle East, South Asia and Central Asia and Africa, including three assignments as chief of station and chief of base in a South Asia conflict zone. He's the author of The Recruiter, Spying and the Lost Art of American Intelligence, and we will discuss his article at The Hill, Heads Begin to Roll in Russia. Then finally, we'll assess whether there will be blowback against the dollar as the reserve currency following the freezing of Russia's $630 billion in foreign currency reserves and speak with Ben Steele, Director of International Economics and the Historian in Residence at the Council on Foreign Relations, as well as the author, most recently, of The Marshall Plan, Dawn of the Cold War. And we'll discuss his article at Foreign Affairs, Is China Helping Russia Hide Money? And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now is Lisa Graves, the Executive Director of the new corporate watchdog group, True North Research. She has served as a senior advisor in all three branches of the federal government, as Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the Justice Department, as Chief Counsel for nominations on the Senate Judiciary Committee, and as a Deputy Chief of the Article Three Judges Division of the U.S. Courts. Welcome to Background Briefing, Lisa Graves. 
Thank you so much, Ian, for having me on. Well, thanks. And, and uh, obviously, since you were the chief counsel for nominations on the Senate Judiciary Committee, you have experienced these hearings from the inside that we're watching now for Judge Jackson to become Justice Jackson. And obviously, I've been busy getting a program together today. I haven't been able to watch all of it or a lot of it, but I did watch Ted Cruz try to slime her, and it was quite sickening to suggest that somehow she's soft on child pornography. But since I didn't watch the whole breadth of it, what's your opinion of how it went today? Well, I think that Judge uh, Judge Jackson has been doing a very good job of responding candidly to these questions, including some very hostile questions and attacks by some of these Republican senators. It's really astonishing to me is to see how much uh, just disinformation is pouring out of the Republican side of the aisle. Uh, It's extraordinary, even by the standards or the low standards we've seen from uh, the Republicans. And Cruz, you know, is one of those members who has uh, just, you know, continued to, I think, mislead the American people in substantial ways. Well, is it working? Do you think, I mean, they the Democrats have a majority, don't they? And are there any chances of any Democrats not sticking with the rest of them? In other words, they're not depending, the Democrats are not depending upon Republican votes, are they? Well, I think that this is a nominee who should get a bipartisan vote, but whether she will get that is unclear because it seems that the Republicans have sort of drawn a line in the sand that they're not going to vote in favor of any uh, Biden nominee. to the um, And so they don't need uh, any Republican votes because there's a 50-50 Senate and Vice President Harris would break a tie. Um, but she certainly warrants uh, people crossing the aisle to support her. And in fact, outside of the Senate, she's uh, received a number of letters of support from prominent Republicans um, and has previously uh, been praised by the former the former majority leader, the former Speaker of the House, pardon me, for the Republicans, Paul Ryan. And so she's someone who has bipartisan support outside of the United States Senate, but within the Senate Judiciary Committee, which has some of the most sort of right-wing extreme members, including people like Josh Hawley, who I don't even think should be in the Senate uh, based on his support for the insurrection, his effort to overturn the presidential election. Um, that committee has some of the most right-wing Republican members on it, and they are so partisan and hyper-partisan that I doubt that she'll get any votes from any Republicans in that committee. Well, Ted Cruz, who I mentioned earlier, who was trying to slime her today and make it seem that she was soft on pornography, he, of course, along with Josh Hawley, I mean, he's he's an insurrectionist, let's face it. I mean, (laughs) if you see the, the footage of the insurrectionists storming into the Capitol into the Senate on January the 6th, where they literally at Ted Cruz's desk and they saying, oh, no, no, he's one of us. You know, he's a part of the, you know, they're looking around to hang Mike Pence <laughs> and they at Ted Cruz's desk and they all agree amongst themselves, oh, he's one of us. He is one of them, isn't he? And along with Hawley. Oh, yes. I, I didn't mean to leave him out. I think neither Josh Hawley nor Ted Cruz should have seats on the Judiciary Committee. I know that that's a choice of their party and not a choice uh, that is granted to the American people. But both of them 
uh, really um, helped support the effort to um, disrupt the, the counting of the votes and aided that effort in ways within the Senate. And Josh Hawley, actually, obviously, outside of the Senate, with his fist pump, cheered on uh, those who were, you know, basically on, the, on, on their way to maraud the Capitol. And so, you know, both of them are people who I think are unworthy of the positions of power they hold. Um, and so in that sense, it doesn't surprise me um, that they have made, you know, really outlandish smears against this nominee. Uh, and on the other hand, you know, it is, um, you know, profoundly uh, immoral conduct that we've seen on the part of both of those men. Um, and Ted Cruz yesterday uh, was, you know, I mean, he was appalling both today and yesterday, in my personal opinion. Yesterday, the the effort to try to recast um, Brett Kavanaugh's attempted assault of Christine Blasey Ford as teenage dating habits was like utterly revolting and repugnant. Um, even though Brett Kavanaugh denied the denied those charges, I think Dr. Christine Blasey Ford testified convincingly and compellingly under oath uh, in the United States Senate Judiciary Committee. And uh, this effort to claim that Dr. Christine Blasey Ford's testimony was somehow just a testimony about teenage dating habits is truly repugnant for someone like Cruz or any member of the Senate to make such a claim in the face of the compelling testimony under oath of, of Dr. Christine Blasey Ford is just revolting. But then you see that these members have the audacity to be basically defending Brett Kavanaugh. And they've, they've also previously, um, many of them have defended Clarence Thomas. So we have two men on the Supreme Court who are on that court despite testimony against them that they engaged in sexual misconduct, sexual harassment in the case of Clarence Thomas, attempted sexual assault in the case of Brett Kavanaugh. And they have the audacity, these members have the audacity to be attacking uh, this nominee by claiming that she's soft on sexual predators, which is not true, has been debunked. Uh, Senator Hawley's been debunked by almost every major news organization, the Washington Post, uh, the Associated Press, ABC News, uh, CNN, um, because his smears are so distorted and uh, they're sort of almost the equivalent of the, the sort of James O'Keefe slice and dice video uh, smears where, um, you know, you're taking words out of context, ignoring what someone actually said. Um, and the whole context, for example, of uh, Judge Jackson's uh, time on the um, U.S. Sentencing Commission. In fact, one of the things that you won't hear Josh Hawley say is that on some of the attacks on Judge Jackson, she voted exactly the same unanimously with that bipartisan sentencing commission, um, unanimously with another judicial nominee, a woman named Dabney Friedrich, who was a Trump nominee who every one of these Republican senators voted for uh, to be confirmed to the bench. And so, you know, there's just no shame in these guys in terms of the way they've approached this nominee and the types of claims that people, um, people like Senator Cruz, um, Senator Hawley, uh, Lindsey Graham's uh, performance this morning was just astonishing and jaw-dropping in its own way. But you, you just see a Republican Party that seems to be desperate to smear this candidate, um, even though they themselves have supported candidates for the Supreme Court who have very deeply, demonstrably troubling records. Um, both in their personal behavior, as with Brett Kavanaugh, and also in his uh, political uh, history in terms of uh, the arc of his career. 
And again, I'm speaking with Lisa Graves, the executive director of the new corporate watchdog group, True North Research. She has served as a senior advisor in all three branches of the federal government as deputy assistant attorney general in the Justice Department as chief counsel for nominations on the Senate Judiciary Committee and as a deputy chief of the Article Three Judges Division of the U.S. Courts. So do you think, though, Lisa Graves, that this is payback for the Kavanaugh hearings? It doesn't matter that, you know, in other words, Judge Jackson is just roadkill as far as they're concerned. They just want to get back at the Democrats for giving Kavanaugh a, a rough time. It seems as though this is a bit of a revenge play by some of these Republicans, um, you know, despite the merits of the concerns raised uh, about um, Brett Kavanaugh, despite the, for example, um, despite the fact that they rushed Amy Coney Barrett through to confirmation just weeks before the presidential election and just weeks after she was nominated, after just Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg died, some of these same Republicans are now claiming Democrats are moving too fast with this nomination. And so, you know, hypocrisy has no, um, uh, you know, does not impede them in these sorts of claims. And so you do, I think you do see this sort of uh, set of revenge plays playing out through the mouths of these Republican members. But you also see seemingly a lot of money millions being spent on ads attacking and these millions are coming from dark money sources that are some of which are connected to Leonard Leo who um, you know has helped capture the US Supreme Court for the right wing um, and yet these same groups are attacking as, as running a dark money operation even though it's Leonard Leo's operation that has captured the US Supreme Court yeah that's what Mitch McConnell said that all the Democrats using dark money to put on a radical leftist or some such nonsense. I mean, <laughs> Leonard Leo, of course, of Federalist Society, is, he's put, what, five of the six of these right-wing judges on the Supreme Court already. So that in itself is an extraordinary record and an extraordinary imbalance that you and I have talked about a lot. And for the life of me, I don't understand why people don't recognize this, that this is something desperately wrong with a court that does not reflect America, but a very narrow, far-right, opus-day view of Catholicism, which is within the Catholic Church, is a narrow perspective, let alone within the broader spectrum of religions in this country. So that in itself is just unbelievable, that you have five of these characters handpicked by Leonard Leo, and here's somebody that is not even going to change the ideological shift in the the court, but they're beating up on her. What do they want? They want the whole thing? They want nine out of nine Leonard Leo judges? You know, it is uh, it is actually astonishing, Ian. One of the things that happened uh, when I was in the Senate Judiciary, on the Senate Judiciary Committee staff is that we were having a fight over one of these nominees who was particularly extreme, and the Republicans came to the Senate floor. The staff had these buttons that said 100% on them. Uh, they were printed, you know, just the words 100%. And I asked them what that was for. And they said that George W. Bush was entitled to 100% of his nominees being confirmed. Um, and I, it was astonishing at the time because those uh, same Republicans in the Senate had blocked uh, more than 60 Clinton nominees. I had worked on a number of those nominations. I knew the number by heart. Um, but when it came to their party, their side, their agenda for the courts, they believed that they were entitled to 100%. That was 20 years ago, and we've only seen that stridency increase over the past two decades. 
uh, you see this idea of 100% loyalty demanded by the Republicans, uh, by the right wing, um, that no one can dissent. And you could even see that in um, the way they treated the late John McCain, who, who basically voted with them 98 to 99% of the time. But the fact that on a, in a, on a number of instances I could name on one hand, he did not go along with them. He was supposedly a maverick. That's how rigid, how dogmatic, um, and how much their actions, their extremeness is doing a disservice to the American people by denying the American people the chance to have, you know, well-conceived, uh, well-regarded sort of people put on the bench like uh, like Judge Jackson, potentially, if they were able to stop her, which I personally hope that this doctrinaire Republican uh, mode will not prevent Judge Jackson from getting on the Supreme Court. But these Republicans have shown over and over again that they are willing to put party above a country, party above the Constitution. We've seen that in their attacks on even investigating the insurrection. We've seen that in their defense of Donald Trump, basically no matter what. We've seen that in their efforts to, basic, to basically push measures uh, across the country that make it harder for Americans to vote. We've seen it in their objection to common sense legislation that would require the disclosure of who's funding these dark money groups, like the groups attacking Judge Jackson. So they do not seem to have any concern about the health of the courts, the health of our democracy. They seem completely devoted to their own power and to preserving their power and to maximizing that power on the Supreme Court. Um, like you said, this court is currently a six to three court. The Republican faction, the right wing faction, Leonard Leo put in place is in the majority. But even having three members oppose them on some issues or disagree or dissent is somehow not acceptable to this doctrinaire right wing extreme party that has emerged from what was the party of Lincoln. Well, Lisa Graves, I thank you for joining us. And needless to say, the demand for 100 percent loyalty that you're talking about. Donald Trump is a clear example of that. And the other example, of course, is Vladimir Putin. And I thank you for joining us. Thank you so much, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Lisa Graves, the executive director of the new corporate watchdog group, True North Research. She has served as a senior advisor in all three branches of the federal government, as deputy assistant attorney general in the Justice Department, as chief counsel for nominations on the Senate Judiciary Committee, and as a deputy chief of the Article Three Judges Division for the U.S. Courts. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking to the purge underway by Putin as he places senior FSB intelligence officers under arrest and sacks Russian generals. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now are Douglas London, a retired senior CIA operations officer and an associate professor at Georgetown University's Center for Security Studies. Over the course of his 34 years in the CIA's clandestine service, almost 17 of which were in the foreign field as a recruiter and an agent handler, he served in the Middle East, South and Central Asia, and Africa, including three assignments as a chief of station, the president's senior intelligence officer at post, and chief of base in a South Asia conflict zone. 
and he's the author of The Recruiter, Spying and the Lost Art of American Intelligence, and he has an article at The Hill, The Heads Begin to Roll in Russia. Welcome to Background Briefing, Douglas London. Thanks for having me on the program, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us. And there are, of course, reports that you mention in your article coming out of Europe that two senior FSB, Federal Security Services officers in Russia, Colonel General Sergei Basida, uh, chief of the FSB's Fifth Service, he's been detained along with his deputy, Anatoly Bolyuk. So what's your sense then of the extent of a purge? Because allegedly they've arrested uh, Colonel General Sergei Basida because of his failure in Ukraine. But the Ukrainians, I think it was actually... um, Danilov, Ukraine's national security chief, said that earlier in the war, they got a tip-off from the FSB that a Chechen hit team was in Kiev trying to kill uh, Zelensky. So I'm just wondering whether there's any connection to those two events. It's really quite an amazing time, but not entirely unsurprising. One would think that Putin would start looking for scapegoats and people who he could serve up as responsible for whatever failures, and if not even failures, the inability to achieve his uh, uh, desired goals and expectations. But going particularly after Beseda and his deputy, Bolyuk, is also complemented by recent news, which seems to at least confirm that he's at least fired General Roman Gavrilov, who is deputy of his National Guard, the Rose Guardia. The National Guard there, um, for your listeners, is a little bit different than ours. It's a full-time unit. It used to be under the Interior Ministry. It's responsible for borders and really putting down problems and revolts. They're the ones that go out and crack heads in the cities when people come onto the streets. So the, the bits and pieces we've seen as possible fissures in the FSB that maybe there's leaks coming out of there uh, would seem to go along with the fact that Putin seems determined to execute his self-purification plan as he mentioned. And that might take on the, the, the look of a purge along the lines that one of his inspirations, uh, Joseph Stalin, would use in order to reestablish whatever he might think is a loss of control over his government and particularly his security agencies. So the rally that he held recently at which he referred to anybody that objected to his war as scum and gnats. It seems like he's really going directly to the people in the sense that he's feeding Russian chauvinism and nationalism. And my understanding is that the intelligence services since the end of the Cold War, the really talented people sort of left and went into business. And and the second and third and fourth echelons have ended up in the GRU and the FSB, and to a lesser extent, the SVR. Is that your understanding, that we're not dealing with particularly talented people, but it seems as if what the few talented people in the security services are being purged, and Putin is going to the Narod, to the people, for support and stirring up chauvinism and nationalism? Well, Putin has a history of theatrics and dramatization, and he's employed the language of victimization and often trying to serve himself up as the Russian people's champion, you know, who he who will fight corruption or the West, or in this case, 
uh, execute the neo the denazification as he claims it to be of the Ukraine. I think one has to guard against generalizations. There's certainly something to your point that at the time of the Soviet Union's collapse, a lot of the brighter, hard-charging folks in the intelligence services did go out and make money, uh, and they some some of them represent the oligarchs we see today. Some of which are referred to as the Soloviki, which is a Russian word for service, like the Intel service, who've gone into business for themselves. I think what you also have, though, is a generational issue. Uh, the FSB is not a bunch of old, crusty men anymore. It's also got younger folks who are technically inclined and digitally inclined. And I, I suspect some of the bits and pieces we see leaking out from the FSB, which has to be an irony for Putin since that's his main counterintelligence arm, is a, a, a reflection of another generation who are not just going to sit in silence or suffer in silence and are using digital means to, to put some things out in the wire. The, the suggestion that the FSB as an institution leaked that information to which you speak, which was about the presence of a Chechen hit team, as I recall, that I I, I'm, I'm, I question whether the FSB institutionally put out information. I think it's more likely Ukraine had some decent intelligence sources or some people who volunteered this information because they're displeased. So Putin's choice then to go after the likes of not just the FSB, but in this case, the Fifth Service, which you mentioned, is really the component he developed himself that he put in charge of the former Soviet states, those who he still considered very much part of his greater Russia, greater Russian empire, because that's traditionally a job for a foreign intelligence service, which would be for Russia, the SVR, which is their foreign intel arm, or the GRU, their military intel arm. But instead, he gave that job to the FSB, created a new organization, and Beseda, who has been around for years running this, I mean, literally knows where the skeletons are buried. So for him to go after such a critical person in his planning, as well as the deputy head of his National Guard, is going after those elements on which he depends, which is why I, I speculate that it could be a sign of bigger things to come, of a purge. Uh, and noticeably, he's leaving the chiefs of these organizations, but going after other people senior, maybe because he needs the chiefs to still keep the, the power that he's preserved these years. And again, I'm speaking with Douglas London, who is a retired senior CIA operations officer and associate professor at Georgetown University's Center for Security Studies over the course of his 34 years in the CIA's clandestine service, almost 17 of which was in the foreign field as a recruiter and agent handler. He served in the Middle East, South and Central Asia and Africa, including three assignments as Chief of Station, the President's Senior Intelligence Officer at Post, and Chief of Base in a South Asian conflict zone. And he's the author of The Recruiter, Spying and the Lost Art of American Intelligence. And he has an article at The Hill, The Heads Begin to Roll in Russia. So just in reference, though, to the FSB and the intelligence services in the Russia not being as talented as they were perhaps during the Cold War, there's no question, surely, uh, Douglas, that the revelations from Bellingcat, uh, which were so detailed about the botched attempt to assassinate Navalny, the leading critic of Putin, was a portrait of the gang that couldn't shoot straight. I've never really been uh, overwhelmed by tradecraft that Russia and before the Soviet Union used. Uh, 
Um, Bellingcat really took advantage of uh, excellent open source research, which is so plentiful and so available. Uh, the Russian successes in the past have generally been through volunteers and volunteers using, you know, who are interested in money or through the use of coercion, through blackmail. But their tradecraft has not been on par, I say, with, I suspect, maybe some bias of the United States and, and some of our foreign intelligence partners. So, again, to your point that they may not exactly be the, the best and the brightest, I would also think that's a reflection of the, the organizations as institutions. That which they preserve or, or pursue most is, is use of pressure and often use of heavy-handed tactics. Uh, the assassination attempts and some successful ones that the GRU, the unit you're referring to, is 29155 which has gotten a lot of attention, which is supposed to be a small elite unit, I don't necessarily know was meant to be perpetually secret as, as much as it was intended to make a point to other defectors. So, yeah, there was certainly some sloppiness at hand, some of the use of um, alias personas and, and some of the, the trails that they left, but I don't think they labored as much to make sure that their hand wouldn't have been seen in the first place. So, uh, given that Putin was the first head of the FSB before he became prime minister, and as you point out in the article, he rose to becoming the president of Russia, one, they did a honey trap on the prosecutor he was running against, and two, he bombed these apartment buildings on the outskirts of Moscow, killing over 300 and, and wounding a 1,000 uh, of his own citizens. I've always been astounded uh, that None of that information was ever really, well, it was always public, but it was never really pressed by anybody until recently the Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, started to talk about the record. Why is it that we in the West have not seen this guy as the thug and gangster that he is? I'm talking about Putin. I mean, it's extraordinary how we have self-censored and sanitized his record. I think it's sadly wishful thinking. Um, President George uh, W. Bush claimed to have seen into his soul and believed Putin was somebody he could work with. Uh, Hillary Clinton talked about the famous reset. I think it's a case where particularly political leaders want to see things as they wish them to be as opposed to what they really are because the alternative was just too difficult. The idea that Russia would again uh, be uh, a, not just a rival, but a serious security threat. We tried to write them off in the 90s when the Soviet Union collapsed and then suggested, well, you know, they're more interested in prosperity and wealth. You look now, Putin has basically compromised that which the Russian people have attained over the last 30 or so years by throwing it all away for his campaign in Ukraine, which I think was certainly part hubris and ego and this determination to restore his idea of the Soviet empire. But I also think he made his calculus on bad intelligence in, uh, among institutions that he created that the atmosphere was such that the intelligence was really spun to suit what he wanted to hear anyway. He, he carried himself as a strong man abroad and certainly internally, not to be questioned. And, and as I've written elsewhere, 
who's going to tell the emperor he has no clothes? So I, I, I'm reluctant to believe Putin has gone off the deep end and that he's, you know, emotionally unstable. He may be, and he may get there based on the, the, the challenges he's finding in Ukraine and the world's reaction. But I think he made decisions on what he thought was solid intelligence because the institutions are so warped based on this political allegiance to him and, and not offending him or, or certainly not soliciting his wrath that he got what he built, which was, here's what you want to hear, here's what we'll tell you, and it turned out not to be the case. I think it's remarkable, we talked about the Rose Guardi, the National Guard, and the deputy who was at least fired, because that seems to have been confirmed by Russian sources you see on social media, but probably uh, at least under house arrest. These were units that are for crowd control, and, and basically his strong arm for putting down demonstrations. These units were sent in without even armor vehicles, and they were just mowed down to pieces if you believe what you're seeing in the press, not just from Ukrainian sources, but from Russian sources who are talking about lost relatives and family members. It's just remarkable. And the National Guard is, is in, in effect, Putin's private militia. So that's even more surprising. But from my sort of research, Douglas, it always seems to me that the KGB always sort of ran the Soviet Union from behind the scenes, you know, and Dropov effectively ran the country through the stagnation period when under Brezhnev, and then there was a placeholder, and then finally Andropov gets the top job, and he's by that time he's on dialysis and dies shortly thereafter, and then they bring in this bright young guy from the south they thought was going to, and that was a KGB project of Perestroika and and Glasnost because they were the only ones that kept the records and they knew the place was falling apart. And, and it looks like they laid low for a while during the Yeltsin period, and then Yeltsin made the fateful mistake of appointing Putin as the head of FSB and then later as his prime minister, and they're back, right? And as far as I can tell, the security services in the Soviet Union in Russia, their loyalty is to the state, not to the people. And Putin has demonstrated that. I mean, if you look at the so-called Chechen takeover of the theater a while back where they pumped an aerosol version of fentanyl into the uh, air conditioning and... The Chechens died, but a whole bunch of innocent Russians died. Putin was in charge of that, and he didn't bother to have the first responders with Narcan that could have brought all the innocent Russians back from the death that they suffered. So that, to me, is just an example of, of who this guy is and how he thinks, and the idea that he could kill over 300 of his own people in order to start a war in Chechnya to burnish his credentials or to tell us who he is, and he's, as far as I can tell, he's he is and was, even though he was had an undistinguished career in uh, Dresden, he's a Stalinist Czechist, isn't he? Oh, I would agree. Uh, he's certainly an extension of what we've seen uh, in Russia, the Soviet Union before that, and then Imperial Russia before that. Some form of the secret police have always been the power behind the power, or in fact, the real power. Under the Tsar, it existed. They had a special unit, and that became the Czechists under the, the communists after the Bolshevik Revolution, and then the KGB. And when the KGB split after the Soviet Union collapsed, it was really the FSB that came out of it with 
the resources and the power, but even more fortified under who gave them really the lion's share of the power and the authorities, leaving the SVR, the Foreign Intelligence Service, sort of the, the stepchild out, outside on, on the periphery. But Putin's, you know, religion, if you would, is, is the power of empire. And he is or has been in his remarks, certainly a fan of history and restoring the history to which he thinks was taken away from his country. Uh, the idea of deliberately targeting civilians, I mean, that is part of the strategy right now. So what Russian forces are doing are trying to compromise the will of the Ukrainian people. And they're doing that by deliberately targeting them, by deliberately leveling their cities. So this, these are not you know, collateral damage and accidents. That's the strategy. I, I, I expect that when Putin sent his troops in, he was expecting an occupation, which I think explains why he was sending in his National Guard troops, which are really more special police forces without even armor. I, I suspect he expected they would just walk into the cities, be well received, or at least the people would be indifferent, and they would occupy Ukraine. Instead, he's in for a very tough fight, one for which I, it appears from evidence in the battlefield, Russian forces are not prepared to achieve. So just in the last couple of minutes, then, uh, Douglas London, Putin um, seems to be determined to win and flatten the country. And his, his troops are dug in, but they're pounding civilian centers and trying to terrorize the people. Zelensky's trying to get a peace deal going, but I don't see Putin going along with it. The only thing that would change that equation would be those around him, as, and what we saw from that extraordinary display of the National Security Council meeting prior to the war, where Putin dressed them down like errant schoolboys, you don't get the impression that there's anybody around him that has much authority. But the hope would be, surely, that enough of them around him could either sway him to accept reality or do away with him. So how do you see this thing playing out? Well, Putin's actions suggest that he's been doubling down as he fears he's losing control. He's an intelligence officer. Intelligence officers are conditioned to try to secure as much control as they can so they could basically choreograph how people will react to them so they could be several steps ahead on the chessboard. Putin has been losing control, certainly losing control of the battlefield, losing control of the international narrative, thanks to a lot of what the United States and its allies have been doing and their unity and consensus. So I fear in desperation he'll continue to use more brutal tactics, be more repressive at home, crack down, which is why I suspect a purge may be in the offing. But he's not suicidal, not that we've seen him to be at least in the last 20 years. So if he gets to a point where he's throwing good money after bad and he's actually raising his losses, I, I don't rule out the possibility he will try to find some face-saving off-ramp. I think they are fewer and further between right now. But those he's surrounded himself with at the very top are those least likely probably to risk standing up against him, with perhaps the exception of the head of the FSB, Bortnikov, who is among this group one of the few actual professionals. Bortnikov is a career intelligence officer. Narishkin, the head of the Foreign Intelligence Service, the SDR, 
was in the SVR, left it, became a politician, made money, came back as an appointee, as is a defense minister who's actually a politician as opposed to a career military officer. So he's protected himself at the top for the most part, but it's the next layer down over which he might have to be concerned. Other generals or even colonels, if you would, if you just want to think about ranks, who might plot against him and have the means and the tools that he's given them to protect him, but perhaps turned around against him to see to his doom. Well, just in the last minute, I saw an interview with the ex-wife of Putin's banker and oligarch, and she's a relative, she's a descendant of Tolstoy, and she was asked by the CNN interviewer about these theories that we all have about Putin's ambitions to take the Baltics and to, all of you know the idea that Ukraine is just the beginning of his rebuilding the Soviet Empire, and she sort of laughed that off and said, "No, you know, essentially this is a group of gangsters who've stolen a country." They're, they're, all they're thinking about is is how to stay in power. That's my sense, that this is a kleptocracy that he regulates, that these people are stealing the country blind, using bread and circuses to distract people. And this war, of course, is a huge piece of theatre on their part, but it may turn bad. So just in, in the basic sense, do you go along with this idea that this is a... And the new czar who's going to recreate the Soviet Union, or is this just a, a little guy who punches above his weight, who is running a criminal operation and is basically bit off more than he can chew? I think the danger for Putin is he might be going in a different direction. Uh, the, the comments you refer to are totally online, and that's the kleptocracy that he's built. These are the oligarchs and the Siloviki the former intel types, the KGB types, who have made literally billions. Like the mob, like organized crime, they're more concerned about keeping their billions and getting more. Putin might have gotten a little bit too full of himself and ahead of himself and started believing his own you know, cult of personality and pursued this idea of greater empire. I think fundamentally because he saw it as a window that he had to act sooner rather than later, to prevent a grassroots political movement against him. But I think also a bit of this fanciful um, romance of being just that, the ultimate news czar. But that's going against the people who have the billions, many billions, to perhaps fund somebody within his inner circle to move against him. So I think for him, that's part of the danger, which might very well be why he may pursue a purge, because he now realizes perhaps that threat from these people he's enriched, and he might believe he has a desperate need with some urgency to preempt them from acting against him while he still can. Well, Douglas London, I thank you very much for joining us here today. It's been my pleasure. Thank you, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Douglas London, who's a retired senior CIA operations officer and associate professor at Georgetown University's Center for Security Studies. Over the course of his 34 years in the CIA's clandestine service, almost 17 of which were in the foreign field as a recruiter and an agent handler, he served in the Middle East, South and Central Asia, and Africa, including three assignments as Chief of Station, the President's Senior Intelligence Officer at Post, and Chief of Base in a South Asia conflict zone. And he's the author of The Recruiter, Spying and the Lost Art of American Intelligence. And he has an article at The Hill, The Heads Begin to Roll in Russia. 
We're going to take a brief station break. We're back assessing whether there would be blowback against the dollar as the reserve currency following the freezing of Russia's $630 billion in foreign currency reserves. I'm at home in the streets of Rome or just hanging around Old Shanghai. Danger is my logo. Espionage and go-go. I'm just digging this American crime. Two deadly agents of a wicked persuasion tried to send me on a permanent vacation. I gave them the slip. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Ben Steele, who's Director of International Economics and an historian-in-residence at the Council on Foreign Relations, as well as the author, most recently, of The Marshall Plan, Dawn of the Cold War. And he has an article at Foreign Affairs, Is China Helping Russia Hide Money? Welcome to Background Briefing, Ben Steele. Thanks for having me, Ian. So you've asked the question, Ben, is China helping Russia hide money? Uh, The Kremlin may have stashed billions in offshore accounts. So obviously, even though the sanctions against uh, Russian oligarchs are much more powerful than ever, I did have on yesterday's program the former finance minister of Ukraine from 2014 to 2016, just after the Maidan Revolution of Dignity. And she was saying that she doesn't think the sanctions against the Russian oligarchs and Putin are sufficient. But, well, let me start there. Do you think they're sufficient? Well, you know, I, I think on paper they're, they're probably, you know, uh, about as, as far as we're able to go. I think the big, biggest problems there are enforcement. Take Putin, for example. You don't expect there to be many large assets uh, outside of Russia with the ownership listed as the Putin. Um, uh, Putin is clearly much more clever than that. Um, and uh, any major ownership stakes he has in assets outside of Russia are going to be well disguised. So I don't think he personally is really all that concerned uh, 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 about such sanctions. I think the most significant part of the sanctions are the sanctions against um, uh, Russian banks. And in particular, this is where they're really quite unprecedented, the, the Russian Central Bank. And so that's the issue that I took on in my foreign affairs article, because those sanctions have been celebrated as being unprecedented, and they are. Um, but I think we, we really need to be aware in the um, in the West before we start celebrating about um, uh, success prematurely, that there are ways in which Russia can significantly get around those sanctions. And my co-author and I do believe that Russia has already taken some quite significant steps, uh, at least both in 2018 and more recently in December 2021, to prepare for such sanctions. So let's talk about the $630 billion in foreign reserves that Putin had stashed away as his rainy day fund in anticipation of Western sanctions. There, there's one aspect of that that I'd like to ask you about, Ben, and that is that is it possible that that could in any way backfire in as much as the dollar is the 
global reserve currency? And did we cross a line by confiscating a country's dollar reserves? And would that in any way make people around the world think, you know, maybe we shouldn't have our reserves and holdings in dollars if the U.S. can confiscate them? Well, we, we we should be clear. First of all, they they didn't they didn't outright confiscate anything, at least not yet. Um, these assets are frozen, no. um, but that in itself is extremely significant. I mean, really really unprecedented. Of course, um, we've imposed heavy sanctions on uh, North Korea and Iran, um, but the Russian economy is uh, very uh, significantly larger and much more importantly integrated into the global economy, particularly because of Russia's major role as an, as an oil and gas exporter. Uh, but you raise an important issue. Um, U.S. financial sanctions are very, very powerful because of the critical role of the U.S. dollar in international transactions. Um, but when you take steps like this, uh, barring um, major Russian central banks from the SWIFT international messaging system, essentially shutting down their international tra transactions and freezing the assets of the Russian central bank. Um, uh, what you're doing is telling the world that it's, it's, it's very dangerous to rely too much on the U.S. dollar. It's sort of like having an extremely powerful antibiotic, you know, that it's very effective against a certain bacteria, but you overprescribe it. When you overprescribe it, what happens? The bacteria mutates into forms that are resistant to the antibiotic. And we're already seeing the beginnings of that sort of mutation in the international system. Uh, countries like Russia and China have been diversifying their reserves slowly, but they're moving in that direction. Um, different currencies are, are being um, um, used, although the increases are slight at the margin, um, the euro in particular. Uh, but gold um, perhaps will become a more significant reserve asset in the future. Um, you, you, you always have a uh, barter as a fallback, particularly for a country like Russia, that is a major commodity, uh, exporter. And of course we can expect forms of digital currency, private digital currency to, to be, uh, more significant in the future, particularly if countries become concerned about, um, the U S and the West broadly using sanctions like this. I should emphasize that these sanctions are, though, far more significant than those um, the U.S. imposed against um, Iran when the Trump administration pulled out of the Iran deal. Because, as you remember, the um, Europeans were very much against that. Um, and so the Europeans um, began an effort to build an international payment system um, in which the dollar wouldn't play a role. But in this particular case, um, the West is really unprecedentedly united in imposing major sanctions uh, on a country. So I think that that's an important point not to be lost here. It's not just the United States. And again, I'm speaking with Ben Steele, who's Director of International Economics and the historian in residence at the Council on Foreign Relations, as well as the author most recently of The Marshall Plan, Dawn of the Cold War.
and he has an article at Foreign Affairs, Is China Helping Russia Hide Money? So just in, in the last few minutes, uh, Ben, let's get back to your article at Foreign Affairs, Is China Helping Russia Hide Money? Uh, and it seems almost inconceivable that China, given a choice between countries, the US and the West and Japan and South Korea and Western Europe and the huge amount of trade that it does with all of those countries compared to its ties and trade to Russia is ridiculous, uh, that they would choose to help Russia out, either openly or clandestinely. But you're dealing with a Communist Party leader who's not necessarily... He's, he's interested in the power of the Communist Party and not necessarily interested or aware of the finer points of international trade and economics. So what do you think she is going to do? Because you're, you're saying that there's... That Belgium's Euroclear Bank has likely been a conduit the Chinese have been using to hide Russian money. We know that Biden had a four, even five-hour conversation with Xi the other day. I'm sure it came up. Do you think that she's going to make the decision to stick with the West and not risk being ostracized like Putin is? Or... Well, I'm not. Yeah, I'm not convinced, Ian, that um, from Xi's perspective, at least, that this is in any way a serious either-or. Um, uh, he fully expects that he's going to be able to continue carrying on trade as normal with um, the countries you, you mentioned, like Japan and South Korea. Um, he's uh, interested, however, in uh, broadening and deepening um, his relations with Russia, because Russia is, um, um, first of all, significant in the economic space in commodities, particularly um, oil and gas, both of which are extremely important to China. Um, but they are still also still um, a significantly a, a military power and not just a regional military power. We've seen that they are capable of bringing that power to bear far from their home base as they did in, in, in Syria. So, um, you know, President Xi sees the beginnings of this alliance as a way to counter the U United States in far more than the economic sphere. So just in closing, uh, Ben Steele, a lot of analysts thought that there was a uh, possibility that Xi would move against Taiwan if we were distracted with a Russian invasion of Ukraine. I imagine from Xi's point of view, uh, he's looking at what the Russians are doing in Ukraine and thinking, my God, this is not going so well, and <laughs> maybe I should have second thoughts about taking on Taiwan, which would be a lot tougher. Well, I, I, I think that's important. Um, I, I don't think he's drawing significant conclusions from um, Russia's military failure since a um, uh, Chinese invasion of Taiwan uh, would be, you know, carried out in a very, very different geographic context, and um, uh, China has very different military assets to bring to bear. Um, having said that, he certainly cannot be happy uh, about the international reaction, which has really been quite remarkable um, in uniting the West, which, as you know, had been had been fragmenting politically and economically during the the, the Trump years, um, and quite frankly, Biden didn't have a, a particularly good first year. 
um, uh, the uh, Afghanistan with withdrawal was, um, you know, a complete um, uh, diplomatic, military, political fiasco. Um, the uh, uh, AUKUS uh, security deal, the uh, submarine deal with Australia and Britain, as you know, infuriated the French. I think that was handled clumsily. But I think the Biden administration has handled the Ukraine crisis really quite brilliantly, uh, particularly going back to the, the beginnings of U.S. intelligence sharing in December of 2021 that really bolstered um, the political and intelligence credibility of the United States government. Well, Ben Steele, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you for having me, And again, I've been speaking with Ben Steele, who's Director of International Economics and an historian in residence at the Council on Foreign Relations, as well as the author most recently of The Marshall Plan, Dawn of the Cold War. And he has an article at Foreign Affairs, Is China Helping Russia Hide Money? This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org, where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by